Today, according to the Voice of the Martyrs Prayer Guide, we are to pray with the nation of Tanzania in Southeast Africa. Voice of the Martyrs designates Tanzania's situation concerning persecution to be hostile. The government of Tanzania generally protects Christians from persecution, but they do sometimes face persecution along the coastal areas where large Muslim majority populations have very long traditions of Arab influence. Like many countries in Africa, there is a concerted effort by Arab countries to Islamize Tanzania by establishing Muslim businesses and schools throughout the country, as well as electing Muslim officials into office, thereby passing laws favoring Islam. The locale of churches in Tan uh, the local, pardon me, no e on the end of that word. The local churches in Tanzania are working very hard, of course, and bravely to spread the gospel. The population there is about half Christian, half Muslim, but only about eight percent of the Christian population actually attends church or is able to attend church. That's sort of the way America is becoming, isn't it? The Zanzibar archipelago is about 99% Muslim. Christians are persecuted by community members in Muslim-majority areas. Christians can freely practice their faith, according to the government, but are often oppressed and harassed in the predominantly Muslim areas. Persecution ranges from family pressure to occasionally the burning of churches and homes. On Zanzibar Island, the local government is trying to quietly close churches preventing new ones from starting and forcing pastors to leave. On Pemba Island, for example, persecution is more overt. Christians are violently attacked. In Muslim-majority areas, Christians, especially new converts, are often ostracized and prevented from obtaining jobs. Bibles are readily available, but they're far too expensive for many Christians, so there's a great need for Bibles there. Voice of the Martyrs supports Christians, of course, who are attacked, or rejected because of their faith, and of course, uh, a major task there is to provide uh, Christian believers with Bibles. So please remember our brothers and sisters in Christ in ancient Tanzania this this week, and if you would always. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warmer weather. We thank you for those who are gathered here in your name to hear you speak to them from the truth of your word. Um, we thank you for everyone who is watching and listening around the U.S. and around the world. Paul's inspired instructions from you concern children this morning. We pray the young folks are listening and are in attendance. However, there are many lessons here, even in these instructions for children, which are for adults and not merely the parents, but any believing Christian adult concerning their relationship with a child in a Christian home, in a Christian community. Please speak to everyone watching and listening here and abroad through the truth of your words. Speak to us, Holy Spirit God. Allow us, permit us, encourage us, demand and empower us that we translate these words of yours into action in our life. And we thank you for the faithfulness of our big brother Paul and his work in your behalf by your empowerment to change the world. And still does. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus who are in the ancient land of Tanzania. Please help the government to be 
more responsible in caring for their citizens and protecting them from persecution. And we pray that you will instill a bravery and a courage in our brothers and sisters there that they cannot be discouraged or extinguished. Please ease their heartaches, their troubles, their trials, and their difficulties, for they are certainly many. Reveal yourself to them, of course, in the way that you know best, and help us here in America while we can to help these folks in any way that we can with our resources and most certainly our prayers. And so here are fumbling and imperfect prayers on the behalf of all Christian believers the world over that we've been praying for, and of course always including those who've been watching and listening in foreign countries, but particularly those in Tanzania. And we pray for all prayer requests that come our way. Every trial, every trouble, every situation, every circumstance, help us to have our eyes and our ears open spiritually to watch for you, to listen for you. Please help us. Give us wisdom and guidance in decision-making in the days ahead. Protect your people here and abroad, the world over. And give us the hope in the Holy Spirit that your kingdom will not fade or will not fail. And we pray for the spreading of the gospel of the Lord Jesus and its ultimate triumph in all countries and all cultures of the world. In the blessed and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me please for the reading of the word of the Lord. We are now in the last chapter of the book of Ephesians. And we're in some of the most famous passages of the book. And soon to arrive at what is most certainly one of the most famous, beloved, and important passages in all of the New Testament. The armor of God passage, verses 10 through the, the ending of the letter. Today, instructions for children. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Hear then the words of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. These are the inspired words of the Lord, and thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So the last chapter of the book, chapter 6, opens with a passage, a section that, of course, continues on and actually concludes Paul's of course, never forget he's under the inspiration of the Spirit. These are the Lord's instructions by way of Paul. Paul's inspired what we traditionally called household codes for Christian marriages, for Christian homes, for Christian family relationships, as we would say domestic life in a Christian home. In the passage that we just finished, which began the codes, chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, Paul gave, of course, one of the New Testament's most extensive set of instructions concerning marriage. Instructions for husbands and wives. And remember, this is a, a uniquely or distinctly Christian marriage. Distinctly Christian relationships. Distinctly or uniquely Christian home. This is not a letter that is written for pagans. It's not an evangelistic work. This is a work that is written for Christians who are living in a dark world. And how they are to be a light in the dark world. And how they are to behave and conduct themselves on their way to the world to come. So the Lord, of course, by way of Paul, the inspired author, now turns the focus uh, and attention somewhat upon the other members of the family, what in, well, most cultures to this day consider the more subordinate members of the family, the children, and even goes to into, into extended relationships of members of the household. 
Children and parents, of course, first of all, especially fathers. There's an emphasis placed upon the father here. And then the relationship of servants uh, or slaves and masters. Uh, many folks in our time want to, uh, because obviously we do not live in a, a society or culture that has uh, slavery anymore, they may want to extend these principles to sometimes we wish to compare it to employee or employer. Uh, really, in a broader sense, I, I think you could arguably apply those principles to anybody who serves under someone else, some sort of authority, uh, particularly on a daily basis, and to those who exercise some sort of authority over others and work closely with them on a daily basis. Um, these are the conversations that I like to have with folks in church. Last week after church, we had a com conversation about I hope that through the past several weeks, I've been clear in that these principles that Paul teaches, as they are uniquely Christian, they were very countercultural even in the time that he wrote the letter in the first century AD. They have been countercultural in this world for the past 2,000 years, and they are still countercultural in the world in the 21st century, this very day and this very hour. Of course, in America, as we slide into paganism and spiritual darkness. But there are certain cultures and certain countries in the world to this day that really aren't very different in some ways than the culture in Ephesus in the first century AD. And a few folks were asking me, well, yes, was this, was this really rather radical or revolutionary to the Ephesians, the folks in Ephesus, when Paul first wrote this letter 2,000 years ago? And the answer is yes, definitely, most certainly. Most certainly. And has been for 2,000 years and again is, is to this day. Um, I'll, I like to read commentaries by... Uh, good theologians who, who know their history as well as their theology because I think it's, it's a very good approach to know what these words meant to the people who first received these words 2,000 years ago. And as odd as it may sound to somebody in 2021, if you study what this letter meant to the folks who first receive it, it will help you to understand the letter and even what it means to you 2,000 years later. First of all, well, what's the obvious truth, the obvious principle? These are the words of God. They are binding for all believers in all ages, in all cultures, from now until time ends, when the Lord comes back. Yes, not only are these principles striking now to cultures around the world and to a darkening American, a dying, if I may be blunt, American culture, but it would be very striking in the first century A.D. to the early Ephesians. Paul is really sort of turning things upside down and inside out. Uh, he's really upsetting the apple cart, if, if you'll forgive the expression. It would be very striking, if not shocking, that in these household codes, Paul all along has been addressing those considered to be the subordinates in the family first. He addresses the women, the wives first, totally backwards from Greco-Roman culture. He and now in addressing the relationship between fathers or parents and the children, he addresses the kids first, completely backwards 
from the culture of the time. And then he probably really shook things up when he addresses slaves and masters. He addresses who first? Slaves. Verse 5. Be obedient to those who are your masters. And the obedience is not really because of the master. The obedience is really because of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's a bit radical that all of the commands for every member of the household. Wives do this because of Christ. Husbands do this because of Christ. Children do this because of the Lord. Slaves do this because of Christ. And yes, you masters, you are expected to behave a certain way because of Christ. You belong to Christ. As I've said every Sunday since we've been in these household codes, it is all ultimately about Christ. It is all about Jesus. If you are a Christian believer, your own personal behavior and conduct and your relationships with everyone around you and your home, it is all ultimately about Jesus, first and foremost, even more so than the people you are living with and that these household codes apply to. So, striking. In the first century, and somewhere around this world, he addresses those who are considered subordinates in the family first of all. And that would, be, that would be considered a radical change or departure, especially in the first century A.D. when the Ephesian Christians first received this letter. And by doing so, Paul's doing a number of things. He's doing a number of things or making some subtle or perhaps not so subtle points by talking to these so-called subordinates first. What is he saying by addressing the subordinates first? He's saying they have worth and they have value. He is saying that they are equal in the eyes of God in the household, that they are important and that they are worthy of direct address. Everyone in the household is important and addressed, not just the father, not just the legal male head of the family, which in the Roman Empire he was called the paterfamilias. The father, the head of the family, who in Roman law, he had what was called patria potestas, absolute authority over every member of his household, even to the point of life and death. Paul is really turning that on its head here. When there were household codes written to pagan families, the paterfamilias, the father, or the male head of the family, he was the only one who was addressed. No one else was addressed directly. All directions to everyone in the family were given to him and were, as we called, trickled down from him or through him. No one was considered worthy of a direct address but the paterfamilias. Obviously, that is not the case here. It is totally the opposite in the Lord's eyes and in the inspired apostles' eyes. Everybody in a Christian household, as a Christian is equal, is on an equal footing in God's eyes. Very important. Revolutionary at the time and somewhere in the world, it still is. Another comment I should make, if I haven't made it before. Christianity has always radically improved life for everyone. Man, woman, and child. The secularists, of course, constantly slander us and accuse us of being oppressive or repressive. That is a lie. Or that is set out of ignorance. Absolutely everywhere in this world for the past 2,000 years where the principles in this book have been taught, have been faithfully proclaimed, and they have actually been obeyed, life has been radically improved for every human being who has practiced these principles. Every human being. Improved. Everyone. 
And we should always, um, perhaps at this point, mention, uh, I may bring this up next week in um, the instructions specifically for the parents or the fathers. Uh, but sometime in this week in your private Bible reading at home, have a look at the household codes that Paul writes to the Colossians. I know we studied the book of Colossians a year or so ago, but if you want to make yourself familiar with them, it's worth doing so. Yes, they are the same principles, they are the same standards, the same truth, but he approaches it a slightly different way. So you'll get a slightly different nuance between the household codes written to the, the Christians in Colossians as opposed to the Christian believers in Ephesus who we're with here. Nevertheless, they are all, of course, to be applied and practiced by all Christians everywhere in any age, in any culture. And as we move into these remaining household codes, uh, pardon me, we should always remember, where's the focus? Where's the beginning, middle, and end? Ultimately, it is always on knowing the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, a person, as we so often say, a person's personal relationship, personally, one-on-one, -on -one, with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is what it all is ultimately about. If you love Him first and foremost, you're going to start loving other people the way that you should. That may sound very strange to a lot of people. If you put Him first, then you will begin to love the members of your family the way that you should have been loving them all along. But He must be first. Put Him first and you will succeed. And having the home that you should, and having the marriage that you should, and having the relationship with any, every, any and every other member of your household that you should. It's all about Him. Knowing Him, pleasing Him. He is the primary motivator. He is the chief motivating factor always for each and every member of the Christian household in fulfilling all of their role obligations, whatever they may be. Verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Let me read that again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For that reason, first and foremost and primarily, it is right, the chayon, it is righteous, it is upright. Now, how many times have you folks in this room read that verse or heard it? <laughs> All right, now, can I punch up for you how very unusual that simple statement, that first verse would have been in the time period in which this letter was written? And yes, even in some cultures to this day. In fact, I think it's probably would now be considered pretty radical and revolutionary in America. Wasn't at one time, about two centuries ago. Oh, it most certainly is now. There's a lot of people out there that I am sure probably if they had their way, would wish to imprison me or do worse for what I'm doing right now. And what I'm proclaiming and teaching right now. How about that? Again, notice Paul begins this new section of household codes by addressing the children first. And can you imagine what that would have meant to a child? In the first century A.D., this would have been a very big deal to a young person or a child in the first century. And somewhere in the, around the world, it still would. In fact, I, I, I didn't really... I'm not going to blame anybody for this in growing up, 
But when I was a kid, I never really understood that this passage really was personally for me. That God through Paul was addressing me as a child personally. And that I was considered worthy and important of that address. I still always thought that these were principles, especially the kids that was given to your parents, and your parents or somebody else just thumped it into you till you behaved or did what you were supposed to do. No, that's not what he's saying. That's not, that's not what's taking place here. He's addressing the children first, directly and personally. More upon what that means in a few moments. And the child here is most certainly the subordinate member in the relationship that is spoken of then and now. Paul enjoins children to obedience because, again, as for every other member of the household, this is their obligation before God. And I don't think he's just trying to scare them. A lot of parents or a lot of people, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. God's watching you and not only am I going to thump you if you don't do it, but He is. Well, we should fear the judgment of God from childhood onwards. Shouldn't we? Yes, that's true. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. That's not what merely God is saying. That's not merely what the inspired author Paul is saying. Don't stop there. He, but he is saying, children, obey your parents because of God. Because of the Lord. These former pagan kids have never heard that before. They just heard from the paterfamilias, you obey. Because paterfamilias is paterfamilias. You obey. You obey Father unquestionably merely because He is Father. And He represents the emperor in the household. And you are to be a good Roman, etc., 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 etc. Or maybe, you know, they may have thrown... Wrath from one of the pagan gods may come your way, or the household god over here in the corner that everybody was supposed to worship and respect. Well, he might get you too if you disobey the paterfamilias. Or, or the law most certainly will, perhaps. This is completely radically different. Children, you should obey your parents because of God, particularly the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, God the Son, specifically. God, the Lord, Jesus, God the Son, in particular, specifically. He is the chief motivation here. He's the chief motivating factor, more so than even the parents. Paul is saying, children, obey your parents because of Jesus Christ, God the Son. Now let's dig into that a little bit more. Paul tells children to obey their parents. Notice he doesn't say out of love, although they should love their parents. He says, obey your parents because of Jesus the Christ. Because Paul is presuming and assuming that that child belongs to Christ or is well on his way to belonging to Christ. He assumes that that child understands what those wonderful words in the Lord means. Isn't that interesting? Now, he tells the wife to submit or defer to the husband, not love the husband, although the wife should love the husband. He tells children, obey your parents, not love your parents. Although ideally, the children should love their parents. And parents should inspire their children to love them. And he does distinctly say who to love. The husband, the father, the paterfamilias, according to Greco-Roman culture. 
And the paterfamilias is never anywhere else given the command to love his wife and his family. Jesus Christ commands him to love with agape love, God-like love, his family and his wife and his children. Yeah, folks, that's radical. Then and somewhere in the world, it still is. But he says, children, obey your parents. Why the particular command to obey? Because we're all born little monsters with a sin nature. We're willful and we're disobedient against God and everybody else, right? Sometimes people get angry at me for bursting the bubble about their little darlings. I say, oh, yes, you should call the little darling a little darling, but that little sin nature monster is there. How quickly does it take them before they start pitching a ring-tailed fit because they're not getting their way? No, mine, fill in the blank. We're all willful, sinful creatures. So the command is given to obey. And if you really think about it, which we should, you'll come to the conclusion that obedience requires a certain submission of the will, doesn't it? Obedience requires a certain submission of the sinful will. And that cannot be easily faked, or easily put on, or easily feigned. And there must be that obedience of children to their parents in a Christian home. Very important point to recall. Who is the perfect standard? Who is the perfect role model? Always look to Jesus Christ Himself, the perfect God-man, the perfect specimen of humanity, in His humanity as well as His deity. And we know full well by reading the Gospels that Jesus in His incarnation, yes, the Lord Christ, God the Son Himself, in His incarnation, He happily and gladly placed Himself in submission and obedience to his human parents, Joseph and Mary, who he came to save. And yet he was a perfectly obedient child, a perfectly obedient son. He's the role model. He's the perfect example always. Now, it's easy for we modern folks to ignore or overlook, uh, again, the... I'm probably going to wear this word out, forgive me. My vocabulary is failing me. But to overlook the radical nature of this passage, just this little passage here in these first three verses in chapter 6, given to children in its own day, in the first century. Again, firstly, Paul addresses the children first and directly. That was almost never done. Let me give you a few thoughts from Dr. S. M. Bao, who's a wonderful historian as well as theologian. The great pagan moralists, the great pagan philosophers of antiquity, of the ancient world, yes, they most certainly wrote advice about raising and rearing children to the Greco-Roman culture in essays and longer works, but they were always addressed to fathers only, not even the mothers. In this passage, Paul speaks directly to Christian children because they have worth, they have value, and God cares about them, and Paul cares about them. He, now notice this also. I didn't realize this before. This was new to me. Really read this and think about it. He addresses them correctly in a letter, which is to be read aloud to the church and every family and every member of the church. So what does that mean? Paul is assuming that in speaking directly to Christian children, he is assuming that they are present with their parents when this letter is read and when this letter is taught. 
and they are there front and center with their parents hearing the whole of the letter's instructions as well for everybody. That is very interesting. And you remember that and think upon that a while. Because that means a lot as to how Paul assumes Christian families are functioning in the church and the way they meet and the way they worship and the way they hear Scripture proclaimed and read and taught. Everybody's front and center together participating, hearing everybody else's business at the same time and expected to absorb it and, as I like to say, translate it into action in their life. Big deal. Another radical point about Paul's address to children is that Paul addresses children. Tekna in the Greek. T-E-K-N-A. That means what? Both boys and girls and not girls alone. And at this time in Greco-Roman world, at this time in Ephesus, girls were generally sequestered away from public view. Not entirely, but generally. And they were kept under very rigid supervision by most families, by most parents, until what we call what? They're coming out, their preparation for, for public life and for marriage, which occurred around the age 14, 15, 16. But Paul, receiving his instructions from the Lord, life for Christians, life in a Christian home, life in a Christian family, there is the expectation that all family members, the girls as well as the boys, are to be considered equally important of worth and value and equal in God's eyes and are to be present for the reading and the teaching of this letter. And perhaps as some historians have suggested, Paul may be basing this somewhat on the model of the Jewish synagogue, but taking it a whole lot further. And that makes sense as Jew Paul is, of course, a Jew and a Jewish theologian. But of course, as you can imagine, Paul has in mind, take not children. So who is this written for? That is, both sons and daughters, still young enough to be at home with their parents. As we would say nowadays, uh, the parents are still legally responsible for the young folks in their home. And so in the first century as now, this would cover everybody from infants, very small children, up through those who are probably in their mid to their late teens, then as now. This is who this is for. And again, it's significant that Paul deals with them directly and not through their parents. What is this saying? I wish I'd heard this specifically this way when I was a young guy. I hope kids today get it. They certainly would have got it 2,000 years ago. He's talking to me. D me. Directly. Not through the man. Not even through my mother. The Apostle Paul wants to talk to me directly and personally here in front of everybody. Do you get it? I, I wouldn't have, uh, have understood this really as trying to frighten me. I would have understood this as what? I'm important. I mean something. I have worth. I have value. God cares about me. This man who's speaking for God cares about me enough to talk to me directly. My life matters, even as a little kid, under the authority of my parents. I think that's what children should get for this, or from this, hopefully, ideally, that is, if it's explained to them properly. And notice also, though, Paul does, he does tell the children to obey. 
He doesn't use the word hopotasso, which he used with the wives, meaning submit or defer. That was the word used for the wife. We, we wish for you to defer to the God-given responsibility and leadership of the husband. But he does specifically or explicitly say, children, obey your parents. Submit and defer is not a strong enough word, is it? to express the unquestioned compliance that must be, at least at times, must be expected from children towards their parents for the child's own good, obviously. And furthermore, we should note that throughout the entire Bible, throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, it's the God-given duty of parents. It's the God-given duty of parents to set good, legitimate, healthy, or as we would say, godly or morally upright boundaries for children which children are expected to obey. No, the children do not call the shots in the home. Often today in American society and culture, they do. That is completely wrong. That is going off the deep end in the other or opposite extreme. In the first century A.D., I have to tell you, sometimes life for children was not really all that grand. They did not have the elevated view of childhood that we do, or they did not place childhood on a pedestal as we do. Well, we go too far, but they were a little too callous or cruel. In fact, I think some of it was a defense mechanism, an emotional defense mechanism for parents and family members, because folks, do you realize at the time this letter was written that half of all children born did not see their sixth birthday? Sometimes they didn't even name these kids until they had a reasonable hope that they would survive, right? So childhood was not placed upon the pedestal. Folks could be rather brutal or callous about children and child in the first century AD. In fact, um, there was called the right or the practice of exposure, which is basically a, their form of abortion. If you didn't just flat outright kill the child, if the child was not wanted, they, they tried to practice abortion then as well by some really crazy and awful methods. But sometimes they just let the child be born, and if they didn't want the child for some reason, they just took the infant outside of town and threw it out in the woods or, or down in the ditch by the side of the road, hoping somebody else will take it up, or that the animals will get it or just simply die of exposure. That was common. And the Christians were the folks who became famous for having love and compassion towards these children to rescue them and take them in and raise them as their own. And even the Roman philosophers took note of this and Roman officials took note of this and said, you're condemning the Christians? Well, they're better people than we are because at least they're saving the infants and taking them into their home and giving them a life compared to what our people are doing. Now, some of them approved of it. Some of them didn't. Life could be pretty rough for kids in the first century. Those kids knew they didn't call the shots in the first century. Now, in the, in the 21st century in America, we've gone to the complete opposite extreme. Children rule the roost, pardon the expression, in many households in this country. That is absolutely disastrous to the family and to the child and ultimately to the society around us for many, many, many reasons, a host of reasons of which you can imagine and come to those conclusions on your own. But Paul is really radically changing the relationships of parents 
in children. And next week he makes a point to tell the fathers, look, don't be so brutal to your kids. You will drive them to despair. That's wrong. Don't do that. But that's for next week. But for this week, yes, obey your parents. And this may be more radical in America in 2021 than it was in the 60s AD to children in Ephesus. Children, unquestionably, obey your parents because of Jesus Christ, God the Son. And there will be times for your own good and for the health and welfare of the family, the household, that you must unquestionably obey your parents for your own well-being. Obviously, failure to do so means, again, disaster for the child, the family, and other people that that child's going to be dealing with. We're raising a lot of self-worshipping monsters and unleashing them in our culture and our society by not disciplining children or by not giving them any expectation of obedience to their parents. And what is, what's one of the worst things that results of this? Rebellion against God. No respect for the authority of God and no respect for any other good, rightful, legal, or legitimate authority. Now notice, very important, Paul tells children, obey your parents. Here it is. Here is the key, as with every instruction to every member of the Christian household, in the Lord. Those are the most important three words in the command, and there is the key, in the Lord. So there's naturally a few important things being said here, are there not? One, in the Lord. I think this is very interesting. And sometimes we just, uh, we just we skim right over this and don't really take this into consideration. In the Lord. Paul assumes that they understand what in the Lord means. And if not, it will be taught to them well nigh immediately. Obey your parents in the Lord. This implies that some think these children are believers. Isn't that interesting? Or these children are most certainly taught and are being nurtured to be believers. If they're not already believers, they are well on their way to becoming redeemed believers in Christ by the instruction of their parents and the church. So Paul is implying that these children are perhaps already considered members of the church, of the New Covenant community alongside their parents. Otherwise, how are they going to understand or appreciate what in the Lord means? The most important part of the command. So there is certain, that is certainly the goal of the parents and the goal of the church with these children, isn't it? You see? You see what he's saying? The child's obedience is in deference to Christ. For Jesus Christ, ultimately. And he says, the Lord, kurios. Absolute Lord and Master. In some contexts, as in the New Testament, when the title is applied to Jesus, absolute, sovereign, divine Lord and Master. And when you read the word Lord, kurios, it is almost always specifically a reference to Jesus Christ Himself. And so Paul is appealing to these children, girls as well as the boys, all of them on an equal footing, to have an obedience to Christ that transcends even the obedience to parents who they should obey. And this is all firmly grounded in a love and a respect which they must have for the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So folks, frankly, here's one of the most important takeaways from these instructions to children. It's an important takeaway for parents, for Christian parents. 
I hope you've been thinking this through logically and reasonably and rationally all along. What's the reasonable, logical, rational conclusion here for parents? Christian parents, if you want your children to obey this command to obey you, you must instill in your children an even greater love and respect for Jesus Christ Himself. Let me read that again. Christian parents, Paul is saying, if you want your children to obey this command to obey you, you must instill in your children an even greater love and respect for Jesus Christ Himself because they're expected to obey the command because of Jesus Christ Himself, even more so than you. As Clint Arnold says in his commentary, obedience here is motivated and predicated on what must be a growing relationship of these children to the Lord Himself. End quote. So one may paraphrase arguably Paul's words this way, Children, obey your parents because you belong to Jesus. Because you belong to the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So what's another takeaway actually for parents? Not only parents, but for all Christian adults. I felt compelled to write this down immediately at this point in studying this passage and writing my notes. I hope you've, have you come to the conclusion by now that there's some very important things in this passage for we adults, even though these are instructions for kids, for the children. And I hope you're hearing some things you may never have heard before when these instructions to kids have been taught. One of the most important takeaways I certainly got from Paul's instructions to children is for me. As a Christian adult, we are to take the spiritual welfare of the children very, very seriously. We are to take the spiritual welfare of children seriously starting at the youngest age and ever onwards. A child's obedience is further motivated by and based on the fact that obviously, as Paul says, for this is right, dikaion, from dikaios, which can mean either fair or equitable or just, or many times it means righteous, morally upright, morally pristine or pure. Do this because it is morally upright. Conduct or behavior, why is it morally, morally upright conduct or behavior? Because of the Lord, because it's a command that comes from the Lord, who is holy, holy, holy who is God, who is transcendently morally pristine and righteous. This comes from here, from Him, so it is right. And if you do this, you will be behaving in a righteous manner as well. Of course. Verse 2, honor your father and mother, pulling from the Old Testament to back up His command for children to obey their parents. He goes to the original command, if you will, by citing Exodus, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So, moving a little more rapidly, perhaps, through verses 2 and 3. So here Paul calls on the Old Testament to back up his argument, <laughs> to reinforce and strengthen his argument, as well he should. And I'm sure the Spirit inspired him to do so, to refer to the Word of God. So he hearkens back to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, God's original, if you will, command for children to honor or obey their parents. And Paul's reminding us that what's one of the messages that he's giving us by reminding us of this ancient commandment? Well, he's reminding us that this has always been God's will for the household of godly people who know God. 
This has always been God's will for human conduct and behavior for healthy relationships and homes. So Paul, of course, referring to specifically the fifth commandment, he quotes it and cites it here. And as he gently reminds us as well that this is the first commandment, the first law in the whole of the Sinai Code that has a promise connected or attached to it or with it. This naturally strengthens and reinforces his instructions to children. It motivates the children. You will live a life of well-being and perhaps even a literally long life. Okay? Now, I'll also bring to your attention, the Lord Jesus was keenly aware of this. If you're aware, if you know your Gospels very well, the Lord Jesus Himself in His sermons and in His teachings recorded in the Gospels, He refers to this commandment a number of times. He does so in Matthew 15, Matthew 19, Mark 7, Mark 10, and Luke 18. And this injunction, of course, as you can imagine, was very deeply rooted in Jewish culture and tradition at the time of Christ and Paul, the first century. And obviously, it is to be... He cites it here. He mentions it here. He brings it to your attention here in writing to mostly probably Gentile believers in Ephesus in the first century in the time of the New Covenant. So what does that mean? It's still binding. Interesting, isn't it? This commandment is still to be observed in the time of the New Covenant like it was in the Old Covenant. Yes, it's important for this age as well. Very important message for we adults. Paul is saying that the Ten Commandments are still binding. You are still accountable to obey them and observe them, whether they're on your courthouse lawn or not. They're still binding. You are still accountable to observe them for human conduct, morality, and behavior. And of course, the promise attached to the Fifth Commandment, Paul gives in verse 3, our concluding verse for the day and that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Now, it's a twofold promise, obviously, as you can see, which promises something akin to, let me broadly say, well-being, overall well-being, and literally, perhaps a long life or elderly life. Now, notice there's something very interesting here if you look at this and read it closely. Or let me say, let me uh, put this before you this way. Read the account in Exodus. Read the account where it's repeated in Deuteronomy. And now read this where he cites it in Ephesus. There's something very subtle there. Let me bring it to your attention. In the original commandment, as given in Exodus and repeated in Deuteronomy, the commandment specifically promises that you may live long in the land. That's not exactly what Paul quotes or says here now, is it? Instead, Paul says that you may live long on the earth. Is that a mistake? I don't think so. Is this a mere paraphrase uh, at the whim and will of Paul? Mm, I don't think so. I don't think it's that either. So what is this? Why does Paul make this subtle change? Here's the reasons why. In the original commandment given in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the promise was for an Old Covenant Jewish believer, an Old Covenant Jewish boy or girl, son or daughter, that they would do well if they obeyed this command. They would do well and live long in the promised land. Former Canaan, 
the land promised to the Jewish people, that particular piece of real estate promised by God to the ancient Old Covenant Jewish people, the people from whom or through whom the New Covenant would one day arrive. They would live long in the ancient promised land if they obeyed that commandment. But Paul's not writing to Old Covenant people anymore, now is he? He's writing to people in the era of the New Covenant under the Messiah's arrival, under the time of the New Testament, the era of the New Covenant. He's writing to Gentile believers as well as Jewish believers. In fact, he's probably writing to more believers than he is to Jewish believers in Ephesus. People who live all, not in Canaan, not in the Promised Land, not in Israel, they live off in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, in modern-day Turkey. In fact, in time, they're going to live all over the whole world. They're not going to be living in Palestine any longer. So he changes the land to the earth. A promise from the Old Testament still holds in the New Testament. The commandment is still binding. Plenty to think on there even though we now live in the era of the New Covenant. The promise to an appreciable degree still holds for New Covenant believers, no matter where you live on the earth. And all the, Now, here's the question. Oh, all right, then that means I have to obey every rule and regulation from the Old Covenant. No, you don't. That's not what Paul is saying. Are all the rules from the Old Covenant therefore still binding? No, they're not. Read the words of Christ. Read the words of the inspired apostles. Read the remainder of your New Testament. No, all of the rules and regulations from the Old Covenant are no longer binding. But sacred scripture tells us, and Paul tells us here, that the Ten Commandments, obviously, are still binding. Okay? They are still binding for human conduct, behavior, morality, etc. So Paul merely changes the land to the earth for believers in the post-Old Covenant world, who obviously now live in the New Covenant world that replaces the Old Covenant world. This is a new time history, remember? He's already taught us that earlier in the letter. So this is Paul's way of saying, obey this command. It comes with a promise. It's still relevant for Christian believers, just like the ancient Old Covenant Jewish people, even though there may be no specific land promise attached. However, if you take it far enough, there may be a land promise still attached. But even bigger than Canaan, and bigger than the promised land. After all, we all Old Covenant people and New Covenant people, we have all been promised an inheritance in the ultimate promised land, which is where? It's everywhere. It's the new heaven. It's the new earth. A new creation forever. I'll quote Clint Arnold to conclude the day. Makes some very important points in his commentary. I really enjoyed. I had a time with this, these instructions with kids. I have to come clean with you. I thought, oh, here we go. Instructions for the kids. And, you know, I don't even have kids. And, you know, mostly adults here. And, well, we'll go through this. And I started learning all of these things that, I, to me, they're wonderful, that I'd never heard before. And it's very important for adults. And a lot of very subtle things that Paul is teaching and, and, and implying here. Dr. Arnold writes, These two promises are remarkable and highly motivating, of course, aren't they? It is important, though, not to over-spiritualize the promises and see them as referring only to inheriting a promised land in centuries past or even to only inheriting eternal life in the age to come. This is for this world as well. Otherwise, Paul would not have included the phrase on the earth. 
for new covenant believers. These are, however, promises held out to every believing child that obeying one's parents ultimately for Jesus' sake, it will lead to their general well-being and potential long life on the earth as well as the next. Now this, of course, please understand, cannot be applied in a meticulous way to every single solitary individual or case. As we very well know, not everyone literally lives a long life after all. This is a general principle. Like every proverb, this is to be understood as, again, a general pattern, a general principle. Exceptions to the rule will take place. However, they will take place according to the will of God for each and every single individual. End quote. And remember, of course, as we all obey God, child or adult, as we obey and we honor Christ, as Paul is encouraging us to do, if we are His people, we all receive the ultimate promise. We all receive the ultimate inheritance. We all receive the ultimate promised land. An entire new creation. An entire new heavens. And a new earth. Next week, of course, we will proceed to Paul's instructions for fathers, uh, for parents. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, I hope and I pray in these very troubled times for homes and family relationships that you will send this message out to those who need to hear it. That relationships can be healed and can be repaired and that homes, parents, and children can function as they should, as you originally intended them to be, healthy and happy and productive. And give us the courage and the bravery in a diseased culture to preach and proclaim and teach these principles, to practice them ourselves, and so to be an example, a light, in a dark world and to perhaps be able to give, be given the opportunity to help others around us to heal and to find out what life is really to be in Christ for everyone and for every relationship around us. Your will be done in the blessed and holy name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing to dismiss whatever Bernie has for us up there. <laughs>